Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Schmidt. We're here with Michael Mega at Nisa Vineyard in Dundee. It's July 14th, 2023. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rich. Uh, first question is why wine? Why wine? Hmm. So when I was about five or six years old, I used to uh, germinate seeds in the spring by my windowsill and watch them grow from the little seeds, you know, wet paper towel on a, in a glass. And then I would uh, create a little garden in the, in the uh, back and plant my germinated um, seeds. Usually there were vegetables, you know, sometimes flowers. So for some reason, I wanted to be a farmer when I grew up. And, you know, boys' dreams turn from one thing to another, right? And so I probably wanted to be a fireman and a, you know, spy and all that, baseball player, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an early desire that somehow got buried underneath life as it unfolds. And it wasn't until I was in college that uh, I took a wine appreciation course and said, oh my God, look at that. Look at all those flavors. Look at, all, look at the beauty of what you can get in a glass with aromas and flavors. I mean, that's wine appreciation course is supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought, hmm, wouldn't it be great to grow something like that? But what, right? And so it was later in college, towards my last year, that I was turned on uh, by a friend's father uh, who um, opened up his cellar to me nicely and um, started tasting me through some various French wines. And he asked, have you ever had Burgundy? And I was thinking in the back of my mind, because I, was, I went to school at UCSB in Santa Barbara, and I was thinking in the back of my mind, um, no, I've only really had Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, Chardonnay, things like that, and I didn't want to be, you know, seen like an idiot. And so it occurred to me, oh yeah, Gallo, the big gallon thing, hearty Burgundy, right? And uh, so I said, yeah, I've, I've tried Burgundy. And he goes, let me show you some. And of course, it was completely different. Oh my God, that was an epiphany. Once you taste French Burgundy, you cannot go back. So then I realized, okay, now I know what I want to grow. And so this was Central Coast, California. And I started looking in um, the hills around Santa Maria. San Inez, I thought, ah, too hot for Pinot Noir, right? Um, and I wasn't smart enough to think about up close to the coast where, you know, Sanford and Benedict were, right? Or some of the great, you know, because of the coastal <clears throat> marine layer coming in. And also I was getting priced out uh, because I, I only had a, a, a very small chunk of change to invest. And so then I tasted um, the uh, William Selyam Rocchioli. 1975 vintage. And I go, whoa, Russian River Valley, Sonoma. And so I started looking there. 
And uh, I was not smart enough to think of the Sonoma coastline, right? 2,000 foot elevation, fog in the morning, wonderful for Pinot Noir. I was looking in the valley still. Um, and then that became too expensive. So then I went through to Mendocino and Mendocino always kind of tasted uh, like uh, pine needles and tarry kind of, the gutatoire was not quite what I was looking for. And it wasn't until the 85 vintage of Oregon, never, being, never having been in the Pacific Northwest, the 85 vintage uh, that I go, oh my God, that's Cote de Bonne. So then I started looking up here, starting in 85. And at that time, that was before the internet. I know it's hard to imagine life before the internet. Um, so in Menlo Park, California was the uh, West Coast uh, station for the US Geological Survey Society. And so you would go in to their map room and there'd be these big drawers and you'd pull out all the maps that the US Geological Surveys uh, had for the entire West Coast. So I pulled out all the maps, the, the weather maps, the topsoil, the uh, uh, basalt base um, aspect for uh, the wines that I had tasted from the 85 vintage. And those were uh, uh, Sokol Blossers, Ponzi, um, Adams. What happened to the Adams Vineyard? Isn't that Shehalem Mountain now or Shehalem Hills someplace? And I don't know who's, who, who it's called or who owns it now, but that was one of the impressive ones. Um, as well as uh, Myron's uh, and uh, a handful of others. And so that essentially captured my interest in the North Willamette Valley. And so I knew I wanted an east-facing slope and I wanted high elevation. And that's kind of where I started. So it started when I was five years old. <laughs> but why wine? Well, because of my experience with the French Burgundies, right? I think anybody who loves Pinot Noir uses those as a benchmark. And um, it wasn't until 1989 that uh, Harry Peterson Nedry, whom I had met through a friend at a jazz club in Portland when I was coming to visit to look for property, uh, introduced me to his garage wines. And this was before he had started Shehalem. And Harry, wonderful man, you know, chemist, intelligent, you know, attention to detail, resonated with me. Um, he helped me uh, get to know people in the area and kind of get to know the lay of the land. And he called me one Friday when I was still in school and said, oh, Michael, I think I have a place that you might be interested in. I just heard it's gonna go on the market on Monday. And I go, well, where is it? And he goes, it's off a of trunk road. So I get my map out and I look at the elevation. I look at the aspect. I'd never been up here before. And I go, ooh, that looks good. And so he gave me the number of the owner. I called them and they asked me, uh, a few questions, and uh, I said, I'm very interested, and they go, okay, you can have it. So I flew out that weekend, and they carried my note, because I had only a down payment, and no means of, uh, I was still a student, no means of salary, 
uh, they carried my note for like 10 years. And uh, slowly but surely, I started planting the 42 acres of Nisa. Previously, they had sold 120 acres to Domain Druon, unbeknownst to me. Um, I did not know that uh, that was happening when I was, when I was having the phone conversation. And so the rest has just been a labor of love. Um, my first clients were Bethel Heights and Panther Creek. I was pursuing Panther Creek because I really enjoyed their wines in the, in the late 80s. And uh, unbeknownst to me, the winemaker of Panther Creek and owner had sold it the year I put them on contract and started his own winery called Ken Wright Cellars. And so I reached out the next year to Ken Wright and I think it was his assistant that answered the phone and said, oh, Ken doesn't want any more properties. But you know what? No is when you start actually working harder. You always have to get past no. <laughs> and so I, I finally reached out to Ken and I told him I had some property in Dundee that I planted in 1990 and by this time it was um, uh, starting to produce. Harry Peterson Nedry made the first vintage in 96 of Nisa at the sixth leaf of my original plantings. And so Ken uh, uh, started making Nisa in 98, uh, whereas uh, Terry and Ted Castile were, or their first vintage was 97, as well as uh, Mark Vlasic, who was then the winemaker at Panther Creek before Michael Stevenson took over. Um, he was the first one to make Nisa at Panther Creek. And so that started a wonderful decade and a half of tutelage. You know, we, we humans think we know things, but we really don't. We, we learn from the people that came before us. And it's a collective knowledge that percolates up through a community. And so, the first vinticultural book for grape growing in Oregon was edited by Ted Castile, you know? So it's like, okay, so what better mentor than Ted and Terry Castile to help me understand how to properly farm Pinot Noir in Oregon? And of course, Ken Wright was the first person that brought sorting tables and modern winemaking techniques to Oregon and thus raised all boats because the whole community was able to benefit from his uh, knowledge and exacting uh, enological skill. So uh, that early relationship, you know, I made mistakes and they tried to correct me as we all do. I mean, you don't learn from your successes, you learn from your failures. And so, the years that unfolded from 97 until, uh, let me think, the last year I sold Ken was 2012. Um, those, those years were formative for me. Uh, Ken, at his behest, uh, wanted me to plant triple seven on the hottest part of my vineyard, which is the south slope on the other side there. And so I did, he gave me the cuttings, I did my field graphs. So uh, the um, relationship that I had with those people gave me a, a solid foundation. And learning then from the other winemakers that I've sold grapes to at Nisa has been a uh, 
testimony to what the wine does in the bottles that they have made. So for example, I tried my best to make decisions on who I would sell my grapes to before I started making wine on my own in 2004 so that there was a, a spectrum of, uh, of Pinot Noir uh, that spoke through those divergent winemakers from one end of a very light, elegant Pinot Noir that Kelly Fox was making with Scott Paul to a very new world, heavier Pinot Noir at the time that Josh Bergstrom was making before he changed his winemaking techniques and also Maggie Harrison was making at Antica Terra. So I then filled in the middle for balance. They spoke to me about what aspect they wanted to make their style and how they wanted it farmed because I was there to serve them, right, as a grower. And luckily, Nisa has every aspect. I'm at top of the hill, so I have northern aspect, mainly eastern aspect, but also south, southwest, and west. And so allocating different parts of the vineyard to the different winemakers for their winemaking style and then farming it differently from what they had requested educated me on how to be the best steward of the land. Mm -hmm. And really, that's what we are. We're stewards of the land. Uh, I'm, I'm um, firmly of the belief that we do not own land, that we actually are caretakers for the land while we're alive. Because the land outlives us, right? It's kind of a silly idea that humans can own territory on Earth. That doesn't make sense to me, personally. So the, um, the expression of this site through their techniques has blown me away. I mean, I can show you examples, Panther Creek 2001 that Michael Stevenson made. It is spectacular. When is it going to, when is it going to fall apart? I have no idea. Um, 2009 even from uh, uh, Maggie, amazing, hot ear, but she like, you know, just shepherded that wine so it's like so cotonoui in style. Um, there are so many examples of the different winemakers that then I learned their winemaking techniques as a toolkit that I could probably um, delve into. Domaine Nicolaget has been making Nisa for about five years now, and um, Jean Nicolameo um, told me, Michael, stop making different styles of wine from um, different winemaking techniques on your property. Instead, let your property speak through the vintage with just one winemaking technique so that you don't um, interfere with how Mother Nature expresses the fruit vintage after vintage through your site. Let the aspects of the vineyard speak through one winemaking technique and have Mother Nature actually be the force, the power of deciding how it expresses itself. Wow, can I, can I get behind that idea? Huh. Nonetheless, I wanted to get three different types of fermentation vessels from the three different um, 
you know, styles that you can make, wood, concrete, stainless steel, and have the vineyard talk through those fermentation vessels in the different aspects and the different clonal subtypes to see if I could possibly have that come off, have Mother Nature at least put a spin on the different fermentation vessels and still just do pump overs, minimalist intervention, always unfined, always unfiltered, because a wine has to be alive in the bottle in order to get complexity as it ages. If it's, if it's sterile filtered, yeah, it's gonna be safe for your consumers, but it'll never age with secondaries and tertiary flavors. That requires biological activity in the bottle. So learning this from the other winemakers and from my experience with Niso over the last 30 years is a great way to stay out of trouble and live your life in a humble way because there's nothing more humbling than the power of mother nature when it rains during harvest or when there's smoke and fire to have you understand that you are not in control. Most of us like to think that we control our fate. We do not. <laughs> and it's obvious when you're up on the hillside, right? Obvious when you're up here with the grapes. Um, before we get, I have many questions to follow up on, but I want to back up a little bit and talk about, uh, you mentioned being in school when this all started. So tell us about uh, education for yourself and about sort of the, par the parallel career. So I was a philosophy major. I was a double major. I was philosophy major and a neuroscience major. And uh, I'm a science geek. And I loved learning how we think and how the brain processes information. So I uh, enjoyed what, what's called uh, epistemology in philosophy, which is the study of uh, how we learn, how we know things from our sensory inputs. And uh, it became a little bit frustrating when it was just the world of ideas. So I thought I should learn about how the brain actually worked. And that's what drove me into the double major in neuroscience. And so I thought, okay, what can I do? I have this property. Um, I want to make wine too. So I was thinking, okay, go to UC Davis or take a stab at getting into med school. And unfortunately or fortunately, I got into med school the first try. So I thought, okay, now I'm gonna to have to put UC Davis on hold. Um, I'm glad I didn't go to UC Davis. Um, in a sense, uh, that would have made me more arrogant about winemaking and less acceptant of others to try and teach me because you know, there's some of us that learn by doing and some that learn from books. And if you come out of school and you think, okay, I know all this, you're misguided. And so it was, um, it was better probably that, I, uh, that life unfolded the way it did. And so I, uh, I uh, then um, after med school, because I knew I wanted to learn how the brain worked, I did a residency in, in neurology and then basic science. I did a PhD at UCLA in basic neuroscience at the same time. And there was lots of trips coming back and forth here. It was very difficult. 
very difficult. But thank God, I, because I had no money, uh, I was in school until I was in my early 30s. Uh, thank God they held my note and uh, uh, no bank would give me money at the time uh, because I was still a student, uh, especially stupidly going, well, not stupidly, but <laughs> going for a, a PhD after your MD and fellowship and already on staff at UCLA. So that was, that was my wife was very upset about that. <laughs> but um, I ended up moving out here full-time in 2004 to pursue winemaking. That was my first vintage then, in 2004. Uh, actually, I moved out here in 2001, but the first vintage was 2004. Uh, and everything else was done remotely for those first decade and a half. How, with, once you had finished PhD, MD, all of that, what did you, what did you find yourself doing for winemaking, or in addition to winemaking? Well, in order to pay for these posts and wires, uh, the first seven acres, you may, you may remember a guy by the name of Robert Parker. Okay. So the 1982 vintage of Bordeaux was the first pre-release offering for Bordeaux. And Parker wrote that up and made everybody very excited about it. At that time, you could get um, Chateau Mouton, uh, Trotinois, uh, Petrus for 50 bucks a bottle. So I bought heavily into that uh, when it was a pre-release, thinking, oh, I'll have some Bordeaux. Uh, it turned out that the more I got into Pinot Noir and Burgundy, the less I liked Bordeaux. So I waited until 95 to sell them. Uh, they had gone up in price, and so I used all my Bordeaux to buy the posts and wires for Nisa's first planting. Um, so wine begets wine, right? Uh, and then it was uh, working ERs, seven hospitals in the San Fernando Valley to scrape up the money on weekends. Uh, I'd never be seen. It was, I'm not kidding, I'd be awake for 72 hours to pay for the rest of the plants and the post and wires. So if I hadn't been a doc, I wouldn't have been able to afford this without partners. But Ken Wright told me early on, Michael, two lessons. Don't take on partners and don't take loans out. <laughs> Do everything in cash. Um, it made it happen slowly, but uh, it's, it was sound advice. I'm glad Ken told me that. I've heard that from other people too. Partners are a no-no. So even though it happened slowly, and I can tell you how slowly, uh, I, I um, started a mother block of phylloxera-resistant rootstock uh, in 1992, excuse me, 1991, and uh, then propagated those, taking the cuttings off of them and just sticking them in the ground and waiting for Mother Nature to cull them to allow them in dry farming at a high elevation on a hill uh, to make them struggle and survive. And once they uh, were able to survive and they would uh, be culled by 50% every year, I then would graft on top of them. And that's the slowest, most painful way to develop a vineyard. I do not recommend it for anybody who is over the age of 30. <laughs> uh, but it served my purposes because I, had, I didn't have enough cash to uh, actually do the um, 
uh, uh, vineyard a quick and, and fast way. So uh, let me think. How else should I explain how painful and slow that process was? Tell me about, you mentioned kind of trying to do it remotely. Obviously, farming remotely is an interesting, interesting struggle. So tell me about how you, how you managed, how you kept tabs on what was going on here, and how you dealt with all of that. Right, lots of, uh, lots of airline trips um, during key parts. So you know that farming, there's key parts to farming, obviously. Um, harvest being the most important. But everything, everything in the growing season leads up to harvest. Once you're done pruning, you can, uh, the beauty is you can take a vacation from January to essentially March. And so once March starts, then you have to come and pay attention to things. I had, at that time, two full-time employees uh, that I used uh, as um, my vineyard crew. And then when I needed like 20 people all at once, I would contract out, right? So uh, the organization of resources um, can essentially uh, be done with trips to visit and then over the phone, right? So uh, key parts of the growing season, obviously I have to be there, and then, like I said, learning from other folks is in, in the valley and having them also help me with observation when I'm not there uh, was fundamental to making sure that the, the vineyard progressed properly and disease-free. So in terms of disease stress, as you well know, um, the biggest stress is botrytis during the rains of harvest or mildew during July after flowering. And uh, we are organically farmed, so that means frequent spray applications. Uh, once you get your, um, your pace appropriate for spray applications, you can, and, and you create airflow through the fruit zone with leaf pulling, where no cluster hopefully touches another one to allow that airflow to uh, mitigate mildew pressure, um, you can pretty much be guaranteed that you're going to have a clean harvest. Pretty much, not always. The, um, the key, I think, also in terms of balancing the crop changed during the 90s and aughts to now. Um, at the time that I first started harvesting for um, uh, Ken, and, uh, Ken Wright and Bethel Heights and Panther Creek, our desires at, at, for crop um, load was one cluster per shoot so that we would not increase production past two tons per acre. Uh, I have learned as time has gone on that that is too severe of a crop um, uh, load at that low of a level, that probably the sweet spot for Nisa and maybe other places in the valley uh, is around two and a half tons to three tons per acre, um, where, where you uh, don't drop three quarters or half of your fruit on the ground. So why is that? Well, because of balance. Balance is key for farming Pinot Noir, where you want to have a, a sufficient amount of acidity and not overly ripe fruit or too concentrated, because uh, Pinot Noir is an elegant grape, and you want to be able to keep that elegance. And uh, over, 
overly severe dropping of fruit um, will produce, uh, in my opinion, too, especially at Nisa's site, where we're already concentrated with dry farming at high elevation, too concentrated of a, of, of a wine, losing some of the elegance and litheness. Um, so uh, those, um, those desires to try and create elegance have been and still are the motivator for me. So different aspects of the vineyard will produce completely different styles of wine, which you may be able to try uh, later on after this interview. <laughs> We have to hurry up and get this interview or what? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, obviously, you, you, you learn all these things as you go. You're hearing them from, the, from your mentors. You're, you're learning them. Tell me about sort of the early, the early lessons, early, early mistakes. What were some of the things you had to kind of figure out for yourself as you were planting this vineyard, as you're figuring out spacing and figuring out clones and all of those kinds of things? What were some of the biggest uh, stumbling blocks for you? Well, the biggest stumbling, I already knew what my spacing was going to be three by six. If I had to do it all over again, it'd probably be four by seven just to get bigger implements through the rows because I'm a little constrained in three by six for tractors and various implements. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, three by six is what I started at and I, I adhered to it. Um, so that produces concentration of flavor at this elevation. Um, so all the mistakes that I could possibly make that I would never be able to undo, luckily for me, were not disastrous. So the biggest mistake you can make before you try and start growing Pinot Noir is picking the wrong site. So our elevation is 600 to 720, mainly eastern slope. Um, that's perfect because you don't get the hot afternoon sun on your eastern slope. Then the other big mistake is choosing the wrong clones. So at my first seven and a half uh, acre planting in 1990, I chose 75% Pomard and 25% Vadensville, uh, own rooted. That was a mistake, okay? However, I can undo that mistake with great pain. And that's what I'm doing now because it got flocks rated. And so I probably have um, maybe only three acres of the original 7.5 acres left that's under production. And we're replanting. Um, so clonal choice, that was a tough one. So I had to figure that out by tasting all the other clones that were coming in, the Dijon clones, through other producers to see which ones I liked, okay? And also to take advice uh, from you know, Ken and, and other folks um, about their choices too. So as I said before, Ken had, had urged me to plant some triple seven in Dundee Hills on my warmest side. Triple seven is a very hardy clone and the planted on the south side makes it even more concentrated and more condensed, if you will, which is fine because different styles of Pinot Noir should be offered to the public. Right? So if a triple seven on the south side is going to produce a hearty, rich Cotonoui style wine, my Vadensville and Pomard blend on the northeast or the, or the east slope 
will produce a more Cote de Bonne style. And so I can offer then these two different styles to the people that, in, that enjoy uh, what Pinot Noir can offer on the palate. So clonal selection is, is, is obviously something that is often difficult to replace, right? It takes a decade or two to make up your mind. Um, so consequently, I waited for 25 years before I chose the, which Chardonnay clone I wanted. And after tasting through many of the Dijon clones uh, and the heritage clones like Vente and Draper, Robert Young, um, my palate enjoys Pellini Montrachet. And for me, I don't care so much about the decreased crop yield or slowing of maturation that the heritage clones have been um, described as having. And so I chose the Wente clone, uh, Bethel Heights cuttings uh, on the hottest part of my vineyard, the Southwest block. And so I can mitigate some of their slowness and ripen ripening, but at the same time, I like the, the mouth feel and more, more especially because the Wente clone has chicks and hens in the clusters, small berries, the chicks, larger berries, the hens, um, you have increased acidity too. And so that adds to the finish, the, the back end of, of the palate, uh, unlike in my mind, the Dijon clones, which tend to be more focused fruit forward and less of a, of a finish. So I pulled the trigger on that and um, I have no regrets. Uh, what else can, could, was mis, were mistakes? Let me think here. So I'm trying to make the argument for those who want to get into this business that make sure the mistakes that you can't undo are not made. And then of course there's always been other mistakes. Um, pulling leaves maybe too much uh, can add to sunburn on the west side, but not so much on the east side. Um, uh, cover crop uh, is important and nitrogen uh, fixing cover crop, uh, I would, I, I'm starting to embrace more. Finding organic hay and cows only fed with organic material to make organic poop is getting harder to do uh, for amending the soil. Um, would I want to do irrigation ever? No, I would not. And so, that is uh, um, probably a, a, a decision that is um, made with uh, intention. Um, what else? How many other mistakes have I made? You should interview my wife. She would have a litany of mistakes that I've made. I'm curious about, you, talk, you talked a little bit about it already, but you mentioned off, uh, before we were on camera, you mentioned the, the, the kind of the rootstock trial. So tell me how, how you came up with the idea of, of doing that kind of real-time rootstock trial and dealing with kind of the pain of that rather than another method? Well, the only method that really makes sense is to take every possible rootstock that you can get your hands on, which I did from Oregon State University, plant a mother block, see what it does, see what, uh, um, see what the um, differences are, if any, and then uh, I ended up choosing from that um, essentially Riparia Gloire 3309, 
uh, the freedom, and uh, um, that's it. And so those three, then I put in another mother block to then uh, propagate and, and expand and then use those uh, on site. So the, the rootstock trial is really gonna be site dependent on where you are. You know, you can hear, you can read all you want about how it does in Oregon, but I think the only sane way is by observation and to do it on your property at the aspect that you have. How much of your, sort of what you consider your viticultural style was from the beginning? Obviously you mentioned dry farm from the beginning. Uh, how, and how much has changed? How much have you sort of changed your, your, your vine growing methods? Right, well the most um, uh, prominent change is not dropping all that fruit for one cluster per shoot. Okay, and three by six spacing, one cluster per shoot doesn't make sense. Um, it's already concentrated enough. And I mean, you took a walk out there, you saw that uh, um, what sometimes lean years can do with small clusters. So that's probably one of the biggest ones. The other one is um, raising the canopy. So Ken instigated me to go from a four foot canopy to essentially a six and a half foot canop canopy to get more power behind the uh, photosynthesis engine of the, of the plants, so uh, raising the canopy was also uh, important. Um, other methods now uh, is uh, the uh, sap pruning method. So uh, stop keeping the head low below the fruit zone uh, with all those big cuts that we inevitably have to do because that just causes scar into the top of the trunk and so now we're using a sap pruning method to try and keep as much of the life force of the, of the plant through the roots coming up through the cane. Uh, that's something that um, has been, uh, I think, a great idea in the valley. Some people argue against it, but I think it it's, makes sense, it's wise. Um, other than that, um, uh, it's pretty darn easy as long as you stay away from um, uh, interfering with Mother Nature's development of the plant. And uh, if you stay out of the way of um, doing crazy uh, amendments or additions. Mm -hmm. um, stay organic uh, if you can. Sometimes I understand that people can't, depending on if they're in a bowl or not, where there's not enough airflow. So then they would probably have to use systemic sprays. Um, yeah, I think that covers it. With organic specifically, what, why, why organic from the beginning? Well, because um, you're, you're you're the sh you're the shepherd you're the you're the uh, chaperone of the land, and it just never made sense to me to put man-made chemicals on your property. So, uh, you know, some people could argue, well, you know, kind of pure sulfur is a is kind of like man-made because we synthesized it, right? Well, no, it's a naturally occurring element. Um, uh, all of the systemics, how do we know how they influence flavor? Um, 
It's kind of like the difference between biodynamic or organic grape growing with wines that are unfined, unfiltered. You put that next to something that is machine harvested, um, uh, using systemics during the growing season, which is cheaper because it pushes out the spray interval, right? And then stripped with fining and filtration, sterile filtration, you can tell a big difference between those two wines. You moved up here, you mentioned 2001. Um, wh what made you decide it was time to make your own wine? Uh, this is what I was put on earth for. <laughs> How did you come to that decision or realization, I guess? Take a walk through the vineyard and say you wouldn't want to do that. It was, I think, Terry Castile's tasting room at Bethel Heights. There's a little picture that said the greatest thing a man can do is plant a tree under which he'll never sit. That's what a vineyard is. So with that decision then, tell me about getting started with winemaking. Obviously, you had a lot of mentors, you had a lot, you've heard a lot of opinions, you had a lot of strategies. How did you figure out what your winemaking style was going to be? Oh, that's easy. Um, tasting the wines from other people who made, who used the grapes from Nisa and seeing all the different styles, I was able to pick and choose how, what the style would look like. So um, some people would do seven punch downs in the beginning of fermentation until bricks hit 15 and then hold back. That made huge wines, right? I mean, that was not my style. Uh, but watching that unfold and then tasting that in the bottle as it aged, I realized, okay, don't do that. Other people, natural yeast fermentation, no inoculation, and uh, judicious use of just pump overs with a little Piaget, um, that resonated with me. So um, I would say many of the female winemakers were the, were the ones that I learned the most lessons from about what I em embraced, what I liked to do. Uh, because um, uh, I don't know why, but they tended to make more lith elegant wines, and that's what I like. I like the cool years. I like 07, I like 11. Um, I like the ability for uh, Pinot to hang longer, even through the rain, as long as you keep airflow going. Uh, I remember the 2007 vintage, I harvested the week of Halloween, and I thought, oh my God, that's the last, that's the latest I'll ever harvest until I saw 2011. And then the leaves were blowing off the plants. And it was the week of Thanksgiving. And I brought in the 2011 Pinot. It was, it was immaculate. It was because it was in a chiller. The first two weeks of November, it was just inundated with rain. But the last two weeks of November in 2011, it was just cool air blowing with sun. And it was like the wines were in the refrigerator, right? And they were just in stasis with some desiccation then to get rid of the water from the grapes um, to concentrate flavor. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a great year. And oh, coming back to the 11s, it's just wonderful. Will we have another year like that? I don't mind the rain, that's okay. People are afraid of the rain. They tend to pick, oh, the rain is coming. We have to pick right away. Physiologic maturity isn't there yet. 
flavor profiles aren't there yet. So um, those, cold, those cooler years are actually quite fun. Talk about your first time making wine. What was, did you feel like you were prepared for the process and were there any, any kind of surprises? Yeah, um, it was 04 and uh, um, I had only like 400 cases that I was making and uh, it was a beautiful year in terms of fruit but a terrible year in terms of farming. 04 uh, was kind of like 13. We had a cyclone that happened at the end of August. And then the berries burst, and the ants and, and uh, wasps came and ate the burst berries. And then what they left, migratory starlings came and ate the rest. I had three quarters of a ton per acre in 04. And what survived was sublime, was beautiful. And so I thought, yes, even though it probably costs twice as much for the fruit, it was focused and concentrated and it survived. And so the mistake I made was one barrel went into reduction and uh, I did not treat it with copper. And it, uh, um, I tried to just rack it off right right before bottling and consequently reduction went into the whole blend that i thought oh my god i made a mistake in retrospect after aging it it went through redox balanced um, plus minus oxidation plus minus reduction so that a little bit of reduction going into the bottle is okay because it mitigates the effect of the oxidation that you get during aging. And so consequently, it turned into one of the most beautiful Burgundian wines I've ever made. But it was a mistake in my mind in the beginning. So uh, mistakes are perceptions that could sometimes be wrongly perceived. Another mistake I made uh, typically, wow, you're making me air my dirty laundry. <laughs> Another mistake I made, um, typically I use 25 to 30% whole cluster in my ferments um, because I like the esters of the intercellular fermentation that whole cluster, you know, yeast independent um, fermentation offers. And also the lignification of the stems can give you a nice tannic aspect that's a little spicy in the finish. And so, uh, I did that from 04, 05, 06, 07, 08, 09. And then I made the mistake of doing it in 10. I did not have lignified rachis. Lignification means that you have brown stems. The rachis is the stem when the berries are removed from it, okay? For those who don't know those terms. And so the stems were like neon green. And I saw them going in the fermentation vessel and I go, oh my God, this is going to be a mistake. And I couldn't take them out. Um, so what happened to the 10 was it, was, it was green and herbaceous for about seven to eight years. And now it's lovely. It just adds an interesting nuance of complexity to the finish. But 
I, I don't do that anymore. I do not put whole cluster in if they're not lignified. It's your fault for saying you learn from your mistakes. This is why I'm asking about all your mistakes. Yeah. Okay, another mistake. Uh, why, are, why are we recording all this? I feel, like, I feel like I'm on the witness stand. Yes, I killed him. <laughs> another mistake I made. Um, I, I had been um, reluctant from 04 on to do any amendments in the fermentation tank. I had always thought that I'll pick right on flavor and let the balance of the wine speak through the vintage and not add acid or not add water or um, not use some of the tricks that can be used, you know, like hyperbaric chambers where you can concentrate the, the must um, if it were raining in order to increase mouthfeel. You know, there's all sorts of things that you can do, right? Um, the temperature fermentation in the beginning, you know, how long you cold soak in the aqueous stage, et cetera, et cetera. Post-fermentation maceration to decrease your tannic structure. All those things can be done, uh, but I wanted to try and just have a, a, a wine that did not have the touch of the winemaker and instead have Mother Nature speak through the vintage. And so, that was a mistake in 2009. I should have added acid, okay? And so I ended up realizing that that was a mistake when it was uh, both in 2008 and 2009, when it was already finished primary fermentation. And so I added acid afterwards. And that does not taste good for many years. It tastes like baby aspirin when you do that. You should always do your acid addition during primary fermentation if it's necessary. And so, um, but I was rigid in my belief, and uh, that was wrong. However, I didn't add it in 2006 either, and that was another very warm year with desiccating winds coming from the east, and yet the public liked it. They liked the big, kind of rich, less acidic finish that 2006 offered on their palate. So I think it's um, up to the public to determine you know, how, you, how they want to choose which wines they like, and which is why I want to be able to give them both uh, uh, a brawny, uh, uh, heavier style Cote de Nuit type of Pinot Noir and a lighter Cote de Bonne type Pinot Noir to select from of what Nisa produces because there's no morality in, in, in choice there. There's no morality in flavor. Some people like the big, rich Pinots. Some people like the light, more elegant Pinots. And so it's OK to have those two different styles and not to try and manipulate the hell out of your wine to always have it taste the same. Well, we've spent enough time talking about your mistakes. Tell me about your successes. Let's talk about, I'm curious about moments both on the farming side, on the winemaking side, where you felt like you had sort of I don't want to say arrived, but you'd, you'd, you'd kind of, you'd, you had made a decision, you stood by your convictions, and you got what you wanted out of it. Probably the most surprising success was 11. As I told you, I purposely let those, let those um, old vines hang. Um, <laughs> it was thrust upon me, though. That block was not my block. That block was for another client. And the client said, 
Oh, Michael, it's raining too much. I'm sorry, we can't take those grapes. And I go, really? Hmm. So after the rain stopped and the grapes were still in good shape, uh, bringing them into the winery, where the winery was 30 degrees, it was difficult to start a ferment. And so I used lots of heat in the beginning to get it up to 90 degrees, which was the right thing to do to allow uh, fermentation to start kicking in. And so that's probably one of the most beautiful wines I've made. But it was because of purposefully uh, not throwing the fruit away. And thank you, client, for rejecting the fruit. And then being proactive in terms of making sure I could get it through primary fermentation of interest in that vintage, I also had to add acid because it had a high malic content. Usually our malic acid is about two and a half grams per liter at the time we harvest. It was like three and a half to four. And so if you anticipate after secondary fermentation that for every one milligram per liter of malic acid that you have, you're gonna drop your pH, you're gonna uh, raise your pH by about 0.1, then I was gonna have a flabby wine if I didn't add acid, which is counterintuitive because the, the TA came in at probably seven or uh, six, eight, seven, and uh, you know, pHs were already, what, three, three, I think that year. And so I still added acid to it and that was the wise thing to do and I'm still trying to struggle a little bit with, okay, is, it, it, is, the, um, is the acid, it, even though it not, might not be in balance in primary, to anticipate what it's going to be after secondary, to make sure you have a balanced product. So all of that worked out for me. That was a success. I turned what could have been a disaster for other people into a success. Talk about the other, the other part of the business now a little bit about selling your wine. So obviously you start making your own wine, uh, you have you have it in bottle. Now tell me about selling it. What's what's been your strategy for selling it, and what have been your right. successes there? Well, uh, one of the the strategy was DTC. You know, uh, the land supports about six thousand cases. Uh, in the very beginning, from '04 until just recently, I was only making about five hundred cases. Um, so that allowed me to sit on it before release. And so because Nisa is so compact and um, tight out of the chute, it requires about six years of elevage in the bottle um, to, become to begin to open up. And so my current release, for example, now is 2017. So I, I purposely hold back which is expensive, um, but it gives the public an opportunity to understand the secondaries that start to emerge from this beautiful, great Pinot Noir. I mean, that's the beauty of, of Pinot Noir is that it has you know, forest floor or mushrooms or dried flowers or so many different secondary flavors that can manifest um, with some bottle age. And most people don't wait that long. Most people drink their Pinots too early. So one success is um, purposefully holding back and allowing the public to understand what this site does with some bottle age behind it. 
but that requires DTC by and large in order for me to recoup my investment. And so in the very beginning when I was selling, I would just you know put a board on two barrels and put a sign out at the base of Trunk Road and you know see if people came, right? And so slowly but surely, word got around, uh, mainly from people who knew about Nisa from other producers. And so I began to grow a clientele. It just takes time, man, it takes time. And so the, the, the biggest success that I've had is to hire uh, uh, Monique as um, you know, uh, sales and marketing manager uh, because she's got excellent skills in, in um, um, service-oriented you know, uh, hospitality. And so she's now, um, uh, you can't do this by yourself. She's now helping with a lot of the sales and marketing and then you know, we'll see uh, if we can grow into the rest of the vineyard and then kick the other clients out, right? We'll see if that works. Let's talk about the name. Uh, how did you choose the name and the label? Well, I was a philosophy major, as I said, and I also enjoyed Greek mythology. And I was surprised to find out that the first vineyard for mankind was in the Valley Nisa, where the Greek god Dion of Nisa, Dionysius, was raised by nymphs, hidden away from um, Zeus's wife because it was an illegitimate child of Zeus and a, and a mortal woman. And Hera, his wife, would like to kill all those children. And so he gave Hermes the baby to hide from Hera and the baby was hidden in the valley of Nisa where the nymphs of Nisa made ambrosia that was only supposed to be for the gods. Man was not supposed to have it, kind of like Prometheus was not supposed to give man fire, right? Uh, the nymphs were not supposed to give man ambrosia or wine. Uh, but he learned the winemaking technique from them as he grew up. And then when he became a man, he took what he learned from the nymphs of Nisa and brought it to us. And no one named their vineyard from that ancient story? What gives? So you did. Tell me about the labels. So we're changing the labels now, but um, in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, where I did my residency, there's an antiquity section in the basement that has a life-size statue of the baby Dionysus on uh, a black panther. And so I asked them for permission to use that for my label. And then other labels still have the Greek myth, right? I love Greek mythology. So, Dionysius was raised by nymphs in Nisa, a hidden paradise where they taught him the art of winemaking, a gift he then passed to man. Uncork this offering and share. <laughs> so our Chardonnay is also uh, uh, 1200 BC um, Greek urn picture of the Maenads. So the Maenads, the, the Dionysian festival, which in the Roman time became the Botanical Festival, uh, was not liked by the aristocracy of, of Greece. Uh, women were supposed to never go outside of the house unescorted by a male. 
of the family. And they were supposed to be only sitting in front of the loom making clothes, cloth for the clothing. And so the aristocracy of the Greek city-states hated the Dionysian festival when it would come in the spring because it was a festival for the common people. And it would draw their daughters away from their loom out into the streets and start uh, reveling in a frenzy of intoxication. Uh, it was reported that some of them became so um, uh, inebriated that they would tear um, uh, wildlife like um, sheep and, and, and various small critters apart and eat them raw. That was scary. They tried to scare their children away from joining that band. But there eventually became a band of maenads that would follow the Dionysian festival from the north to the south of the Greek city-states. And they would use uh, the symbols uh, of um, Dionysius, the god, uh, in their little processions with music and drinking and probably fornication. I'm sorry to say. Heavens no. Yes. So how, as you have, as you have progressed with wine and, and, and labels and all of this, tell me about sales, obviously. How have your sales progressed and how, have, how has the public responded to your wine? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, it's, easy to, it's easy to double your sales when uh, one year you probably have not sold more than four, maybe uh, 300 cases. It's easy to double them the next year. So I think the hard point, and this is, oh, Harry Peterson Nedry told me about this too. He said, Michael, whatever you do, don't make more than about 5,000 cases a year because 5,000 to around 35,000 is almost impossible to make money. If you're gonna make more than 5,000, make 35,000 because then your, your profit is, you know, 50 cents to a dollar on the bottle. So we'll see. Stay tuned. Maybe you'll interview me in another four years, <laughs> and I'll let you know how that goes. But suffice it to say that uh, sales have tripled. Um, so we'll see. And that's DTC. So thanks to Monique. I want to talk about everybody's favorite topic, which is 2020. Uh, I want to, I'm curious about the, the challenges of that year, specifically from a farming and winemaking perspective. Um, how was Nisa affected uh, by the harvest that year especially? And what kind of decisions did you have to make? I uh, threw all the grapes away, except for a couple of acres. Some people actually uh, said the public doesn't even notice. They love it, and, they were, and it sold. Uh, most clients rejected the fruit. That was a tough year. So my, my um, advice to anybody uh, who gets into this profession, make sure you save up enough money to overcome a year's worth of loss. Do not, do not come into this profession uh, by the skin of your teeth. Have a savings to absorb disaster when it may happen. Let's talk about the industry a little bit more from your perspective. Give me an idea of your first impressions of the Oregon wine industry as you were getting into it. Uh, what did you think of the people here and the wines they were making? Oh my God, it was so beautiful. It was, it was, 
I knew people. Now it's like I, 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 it's hard for me to know, it's hard for me to wrap my mind about how fast it's changed, but in, uh, in the um, late 80s, early 90s, everybody that I came in contact with offered to help. And in um, the small circle of friends that were the vintners of Nisa, everybody was, was kind uh, and, and embraced a common goal for bettering the wine industry and bettering all of us. I mean, I, I, I joke not that Ken Wright raised all boats in the valley with sorting table, you know, um, you know, precision in fruit, uh, canopy management, um, just, it was, a, it was a small community for me because I only knew the people that were, that I was in contact with and they were all very supportive. Um, still the people that I come in contact with now because I have a history within the valley um, are friends and, and um, you know, help me in uh, learning how to be a better winemaker and a better grower. So there's, there's no stop, at least in my circle of friends, uh, of that continued growth. Um, is it the same for somebody else just starting? I can imagine that they might feel a little lost. And, um, and they might feel that all the best land is already bought up. Um, so I think that's probably wrong. I think with the change and the growing seasons with global warming, um, there's lots of land in Forest Grove that's perfect, that will become perfect for Pinot Noir. There's lots of land around Salem that could be perfect. There's still lots of land available in the Van Duzer Corridor which would be perfect, right? So uh, it's a little bit more expensive now, but so is everything else. And consequently, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's still opportunities for the younger folks, but it was a different environment back then. Uh, don't all old people say that? Things weren't the same. It was different back then. In addition, to, in addition to just pure size, what are the other sort of biggest changes you've, you've seen in the industry as it's grown? Oh, the quality of the product. Um, thanks to Ken, with uh, a large part, during the mid-90s, mid early to mid-90s, um, the quality of the product, uh, the notoriety of Oregon on the, on the national and international scene, um, we are now come, be, uh, moving from a cottage industry, a mom and pop industry, as you well know, with all of the wineries that have sold to French and California producers, to now um, uh, a world-class wine producing location. And God forbid, that as global warming changes and the 45th parallel being the ideal location for Pinot Noir goes further north, um, that we're able to still maintain quality of fruit. Um, folks have been wondering, should we start planting Nebbiolo now more? 
in this area in anticipation of changes in growing season? I would say no, just go to higher elevations with more north-facing slopes. Also, what's been amazing, thanks to Andrew Davis and Radiant Sparkling operation, is that our sparkling wines are stellar. And so that's been a change that I've seen over the last 10 years, thanks to Argyle and the people that have come out of Argyle. I wonder uh, if the natty wine phenomenon is just going to be a blip and it goes away eventually and that we go back to the uh, basics of making uh, wines in traditional styles. And that's a question that I have and I'm not sure if that's going to unfold or not. So uh, I think the change is for the best um, because the, the more our valley grows in notoriety and the more Californians and French people come in, um, the better the impression will be across the board, both nationally and internationally. So I, I can't see how it's a negative for us in the industry. What comes next for Oregon wine? Probably more, um, more sparkling, definitely. We're really going to be standing out with uh, the quality of our sparkling. And I wonder, the notoriety of Southern Oregon is going to be growing uh, as it should for the warmer varietals. Um, that'll be fun to watch uh, because it's already excellent. It, it's just always taken a back seat to the North Willamette Valley. And that's unfortunate because the first Pinot Noir was planted in the Umpqua Valley in Oregon. We've talked a little bit about the future here for, for Nisa and for yourself, but I'm curious, anything else you're looking ahead to either professionally or personally coming down the line? Professionally, uh, I feel like I'm at an inflection point of sales that, and I've had this conversation with Monique, uh, that I should hit the road more and um, uh, pick some key locations in the, in the, in the country uh, to um, share with a broader audience what NISA has to offer. So if I'm going to grow into 5,000 cases, 6,000 cases, that's going to be necessary. I can't do all of that in DTC. I mean, Stoller probably does twice that in DTC, but I'm not Stoller, right? So it's like, it's gonna have to be more on the road more. So professionally, I'll uh, devote more of my time to sales and marketing. Um, for NISA itself, I would like to um, buy some fruit from Southern Oregon or from Hood River. I'd like to see some of the Rhone varietals um, because I'm, I've always been uh, interested in, in collecting and, and I love uh, the Rhones. And that offers another aspect of choice for my customers. So yeah, that's where I see in the next four to five years. When it comes to the traveling, the sales and marketing, is that something you enjoy to do? Well, I have the gift of gab, and I like people. So that's a yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like living out of a suitcase, but I've done it before. A uh, couple of questions to kind of wrap us up here. First one is, uh, if you were going to do it all over again, is there any advice you would give to yourself as you started out? Don't go to med school. And along the same lines, uh, 
if someone were to come to you now and ask you for your advice or words of wisdom on entering the industry now or going industry now, what would you tell them? Mary Rich. Those are two of the better answers we've ever gotten to, the, to those particular questions. Um, all right. That's all I have, all the questions I have for you. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to cover? No, you stripped me down to my knickers. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate your time. Appreciate your hospitality here. Thank you for sharing your stories with us. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.